Turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Job. The book of Job. We're going to look at chapter 41 because I think it bears directly on what we've been teaching in Revelation 12 concerning the great adversary, the great red dragon who is at war with the woman who represents Israel, the seed of the woman. In the book of Job, you know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. God had revealed Himself to Job in such a way that He knew enough about the Lord and what He required of Him. And He knew enough about the Lord's faithfulness He should have been able to trust it. Satan, who had access to heaven at that time, questioned Job's loyalty. And God allowed Satan to test him. He allowed him to test him by taking everything he owned, basically. And then He allowed him to test him by uh, attacking his body. God wouldn't allow Satan to kill him. There's there's a limit to what God allowed. And in this trial and tribulation, Job was righteous. He never leveled an an accusation, a false accusation against God. And he didn't sin with his mouth. But he was self-righteous. He murmured, he complained, he didn't understand... He thought, I must have done something wrong, or, or I don't know. He, he appealed to his innocence, actually. His friends accused him, you must have done something wrong, or God wouldn't do this. And Job appealed to his righteousness, appealed to his innocence. These things should not have happened to me. I've done right. And Job, who should have known enough about God to trust Him because God had revealed Himself to him, quickly fell into despair. Of course, his friends didn't help matters. They wanted him to confess and repent for something he honestly didn't do. And then as time went by and they had these discourses, a young man came into the picture, and what he had to say was good in a lot of points, but it was off base as well. It was Elihu, the young man, who came and offered his opinion. And basically, Elihu came to the conclusion that touching the Almighty, we we can't find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear Him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. In other words, God is too wonderful. He's too distant. We can't know Him. We can't can't know Him. And then at the end of Elihu's discourse, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And God says, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge. And so it, in a sense can be God rebuking Elihu. Elihu meant well. And when at the end of the matter, God rebukes Job's other three friends and says, you know, you go to Job and apologize and he'll make sacrifice for you and I'll forgive you. God doesn't rebuke Elihu specifically. But Elihu's understanding was wrong. A distant and unknowable God that just does whatever he wants and we can't do anything. Don't even bother trying to understand it. That was a very Quranic understanding of God. That's a very Islamic understanding of God. And Islam is wrong. God is not distant and unknowable. He's transcendent and almighty, but He has revealed Himself to us through creation, through the curse of sin, through the human conscience, and specially and specifically through His Word. So Job had had enough revealed to him by God that he should have been able to understand that this was not a result of his sin after searching his heart and that God could be trusted to make it right in the end. That was Job's problem. 
And really, we ought to be those that based on what God has revealed to us, we should come to a place, this is easier said than done, and I don't do this myself, come to a place where in the midst of trial, we can trust that in the end, God will make it right because of His promises and wait for Him. That was Job's issue. But when God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, He appealed to Job's failure to understand that all things work together for good to them that love God. And so Job began to ask, I mean, God began to ask Job some questions. If you're so smart, if you think you've got it all figured out, if you think that I've done you some wrong, let me ask you some questions. And you see if you can answer me. Because you've asked me plenty of questions. And so God begins to appeal and reveal to Job things surrounding creation. Surrounding the heavens. This is in Job 38. It's not until chapter 38 that God finally speaks. Aside from the dialogue with Satan in the beginning. But God appeals to the foundations of the earth. The light. The heavens. The springs of the sea that seep up from the bottom of the ocean floor. The gates of death. How light travels. The treasures of the snow. Lightning and thunder, the frost from heaven, the stars and the constellations, all things in creation that Job could not understand. And then in chapter 9, God begins to ask him, if you're so smart, answer me some questions about some of the amazing living creatures that God had created. The wild goats, the wild asses, the rhinoceros, the peacocks and the ostriches and the horse, the hawks and the eagles. All of these things that Job could not understand. Too wonderful for us to understand. Not the product of happenstance or evolution, but the fingers of God made these things. And evolution can't explain the things that God brings to Job's attention there. And then Job begins to have a wake-up call in chapter 40. God's appealed to him concerning creation, the heavens and the earth, the living creatures. And then at the beginning of chapter 40... Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm vile. <laughs> what can I answer? I can't answer your questions. I just put my hand over my mouth. Well, God wasn't done. Job acknowledges he has no answer. God's not done. Let me ask you a few more questions. And then God begins to appeal to his own nature. How he decks himself with majesty and excellency. And how he is the one that knows the heart of man and can cast down the proud and tread upon the wicked. God says, uh, if you can answer these questions, then I'll admit that you have the power to save yourself. Job had nothing to say. And then God begins to transition. There's two more matters God brings up before Job finally comes to a place of genuine repentance. He appeals to a mighty creature, a behemoth, which I believe is a great dinosaur-like creature, maybe like a brontosaurus or something like modern man describes through the fossil record. Verse 15 of chapter 40, God says, Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee. This creature was created at the time man was created, with man. He lived with man. 
There is fossil evidence, and you can try to tell kids automatons on these college campuses about these things, but they don't want to listen. They don't care. They're brainwashed, and their minds are made up. They've smoked too much dope um, to understand truth. But there are fossils that have been discovered in Utah and other places in the United States that show human sandaled footprints alongside dinosaur footprints. So men have lived with dinosaur-like creatures. And the behemoth was one of them. When you read this description of behemoth, this cannot be an elephant. An elephant does not have a great tail like a cedar tree. An elephant's got a little squiggly tail. Not much there. Um, So God appeals to the might of a great creature, some sort of dinosaur that lived, coexisted with man. Okay? And then God transitions from a terrible physical reptile or lizard-like creature into a terrible spiritual reptile or lizard-like creature. When Satan revealed himself in the Garden of Eden, he came as a reptile. And this is chapter 41. God's got one last matter to question Job whether or not he understands it. And it it concerns Leviathan. Now, it's interesting that Satan is the one that brought accusation against Job. And God allowed Satan to test him because God knew Job's heart. And God knew that Job would not fail the test in terms of cursing God. So, the last point God makes in his discourse with Job, it's not an argument because Job's got nothing to say, is he reverts back to even Job's accuser in this matter was too wonderful for Job to understand. And he had no power where that was concerned. Let's read chapter 41 because I believe Leviathan is exactly what's revealed to us in Revelation 12. This is Satan and his character. This is not a crocodile in a river somewhere, like some modern versions say or what people try to explain. This is the great red dragon. Job, God asked Job, one last question if you're so smart. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Can thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? These are all rhetorical questions. God knows the answer to them. He's, ans- he's asking them to make a point. Will he make a covenant with thee? In other words, can he make an agreement with you and you be able to trust it? Obviously not. Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? People think they can... Uh, coax and use the devil and not realize they're being used by him all along? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? In other words, can you use him for your benefit? Can you control him? No. Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? Lay your hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? If none is so fierce as to stir up Leviathan, 
Who can stand before me, God says. Is this talking about a crocodile? (laughs) Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. So if he's so fierce that none can stir him up, who can stand before me? I'm the one that can repay Leviathan. I made him. He's mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. He conceals these things to deceive, but God won't conceal them. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride. Shut up together with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. Where do you think the presentation of dragons in literature and movies comes from? I mean, even in, in the, uh, uh, you, you know, they talk about the scales being so tight you can't pierce them. Where's that? That's allusions to the Bible's revelation. They are joined to one another, verse 17, his scales. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his nisings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Interesting. Satan before he fell was Lucifer, son of the morning. Out of his mouth goeth burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. What creature, natural creature on this earth breathes fire? Crocodile? Crocodile? No. There's no natural creature. This is a spiritual being. His breath kindleth coals. Or out of his nostrils goeth smoke and out of a seething pot or cauldron his breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold. The spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Physical weapons can't defeat him. They can't do anything to him. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Is there any question in your mind who Leviathan is? No, you need no commentary. Then, when God appeals to even the wonder of the accuser that came to God in Job chapter 1, even that was beyond Job's understanding. Then Job breaks. Chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything that nothing can be withholden from you. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. 
Verse 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord accepts Job. The Lord accepts Job and we see that God blesses him in the end. And Satan's accusations prove false. And God gives Job double of what he had. Except for children, because the first seven were in the kingdom, the spiritual heaven, I mean, were in paradise. And God didn't need to give him 14 to double, he just gave him seven more, because they were doubled in the resurrection. So, God uses or reveals some details about Leviathan, which I think is Satan, the great dragon. He reveals to us some things to show Job that he can't possibly understand what he's talking about. And this is our foe. This is our enemy. Praise God that He reveals things to us about our enemy so we could know Him. We shouldn't be taken by surprise as these who tried to destroy Him in chapter 41 are spoken of. They bring physical weapons. These things don't work. He laughs at that. God is showing us our enemy. Look at a couple things that are said here. In case you have any doubt that Leviathan is Satan the great dragon, Isaiah 24.1 says, oh, I'm sorry, um, Isaiah 27.1, in that day, you know, in the very end of chapter 26, God, the, the, the Word says, for behold, the Lord cometh out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. God comes to punish the earth. Verse 1 of 27, in that day, the Lord with His sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. It's Satan, that old serpent. The red dragon who stands to devour the seed of the woman. In the Job passage, look at a couple things about our enemy we should know. Verse 33, there's none like him on the earth who is made without fear. Satan has no fear. He doesn't fear God. He tried to usurp God's throne. He is made without fear. He does not fear us. He does not fear, in a sense, the church or Israel. He's made without fear. And that's his downfall. Because he has no fear, he can't see his defeat. Because he has no fear, he attempts things that he possibly can't achieve. It's a bad thing to be without fear, my friends. When you see these logos on these cars, no fear. No fear. The no fear mantra that's paraded in our society, that is the foolishness of Satan. A wise man fears. Has a home, he fears God. Fearing God is not an Old Testament God versus a New Testament God. The Bible says in Peter, fear God. If you live without fear, you're a fool. I know this is a terrible illustration. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be Mr. Relevant Preacher here. I know I've got the untucked shirt and the boots on. and I, I'm not sitting down in a chair though with my legs crossed and I don't have the cheesy glasses on. But if you've seen, there was, a, there was one of, a scene in one of the, the Batman movies, the Dark Knight movies, where there seemed to be an insurmountable uh, obstacle to be able to escape a dungeon. And it was only when 
the character understood that fear was the key. So he, instead of attaching a rope to himself to try to make this jump where if he missed he could fall and spare his life, he threw the rope aside and realized that the fear that, would, that resulted from knowing if he missed he would die is what would give him what he needed to make the jump. Fear is an ally. Not, I'm not talking about fright. I'm talking about fear. We should fear God. We should fear the spiritual things that we don't understand in terms of Satan and his deceptions and not play around with it. We're to arm ourselves, the Bible says. Who arms himself without fear? If you had no fear, you wouldn't arm yourselves. The no fear mantra is a quality of Satan. He's made without fear. And that's his downfall. One with fear would not try to usurp the throne of God. They'd be able to see the foolishness. Let's live with a holy, healthy dose of fear for God and for spiritual things beyond our power. And let's cling to the Word of God and the weapons God gives. Look at verse 34. He beholds all high things. This means spiritual things. The Leviathan sees all high things. And he is a king over all the children of pride. Satan's not only the father of lies, he's not only the murderer from the beginning, he is king of all those full of pride. And he sees the spiritual war. He knows what's going on. He's behind it. Behind the scenes. And he's king over even those that don't think he exists. The atheist and those that celebrate him. He's king over them and they don't even realize it. He controls them and they don't even realize it. King of the children of pride. Look at verse 8. Lay your hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Put your hand on him. Call for him. You'll remember the battle. And you won't be able to do anything else. You won't do it again. You will learn from your mistake. God says for those that toy with Leviathan. I think of a passage in the book of Jude. Turn to Jude. I know we've been in every single book of this Bible multiple times on this quest except for Song of Solomon, but I've already got it written in the margin when we get later on in the book. Well, we will go there. But look in Jude 9 and 10. This is kind of along the same lines. Or verse 8, let's say, we're talking about false teachers that deceive the body. Apostates in the last days. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Well, what are the dignities and dominion that's being spoken of? We look at that verse by itself. Oh, these are people that speak evil of presidents and kings and people in authority. No, that's not the dignities that's being talked about. These are spiritual dignities. Look in verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed, not, he disputed about the body of Moses, didn't bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. Even Michael was wise enough not to speak foolishly of a spiritual dignity, Leviathan himself. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these, that is false teachers, speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally, 
as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. We shouldn't even bring railing accusations against Satan. Speaking in the natural, because there is a spiritual. When we speak in only the natural, we speak like a beast, like an animal. And that's what false teachers do. False teachers minimize God, they minimize the devil, they minimize the Word of God, and they exalt themselves. That's how we recognize them. Let's not be like those in Jude. Satan or Leviathan is a formidable enemy. He is not to be trifled with. Not to be trifled with through interaction or to be trifled with through disdain. Believer or non-believer. I remember Ricky and I were involved in a situation in Africa. I'm not going to go into all the details, but there was a woman who tried to interrupt Ricky's preaching the night before who was possessed of a devil. And we went out tracting the next day in a neighborhood. We had no idea we were walking by this woman's house. But when we walked by her house, she went nuts. And people in the neighborhood chased us down and, and said, this woman, you know, you know, as soon as you walked by, she knew you were men of God. She went crazy. We need your help. So we got a local pastor involved and we went and to pray over this woman and to ask God to get rid of this devil. And in the midst of all this, it was kind of an interesting situation. The devil began to speak with us, or try to speak with us. And it was not her voice, it was a different voice. So we were hearing the devil speak, not Satan himself, but one of his minions. And this demon wanted to have a conversation with us. It was asking us questions, wanting us to give it a little more time. And we just, I refused to talk to it. I wasn't going to re respond, I wasn't going to have a conversation the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Just like Michael. Not going to get out of her, you filthy demon. You got no power over me. You know, talk a big talk. No. He's not to be trifled with. And the devil came out. And the woman was healed. And the woman soon thereafter had her testimony that there was a Bible study meeting in her home. And she was a new person. But we trusted the Lord to bring that out. And didn't trifle through interaction. Those that mock the devil, like here in America, they don't even believe he exists. That's the greatest victory Satan's won in Western civilization. In places like where Esther's from, they know he's real. They know the spirits are real. He attacks them through fear. Okay, he attacks us through deception. But still, he's powerful enough. I mean, there's a lot of stories in American society that go unheeded, where people in foolishness are never heard from again. And there's no explanation naturally for it whatsoever. And the reason why government entities cover it up and the reason why people bury it and laugh it off is because they have no natural explanation. There is a spiritual and a spiritual enemy. We must remember these things. For believers, what are we told to do in the face of the dragon? In the face of Leviathan? It's quite simple. Turn to James chapter 4. Maybe I won't even get into Revelation. What are we to do in the face of this great dragon? Jesus gave us an example, and then James reminds us, Submit yourselves therefore to God, James 4, 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
We don't need to try to fight with Him, to argue with Him, to try to outsmart Him. We can't do it. We can't come against Him with physical weapons. We are to resist Him and He will flee. Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness. Satan offered Him things that He had power to offer because He's the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world. If they weren't legitimate offers, they wouldn't have been temptations. Jesus resisted Him with the Word of God, not with a railing accusation, not with a fight. He resisted Him with the Word of God and after a time, it says the devil departed from Him. He fled. In Luke, it says He departed for a season. That means He came back and tempted Jesus throughout His life. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Jesus was tempted by pride. He was tempted with covetousness. He was tempted with money. He was tempted with vanity. He was tempted with sexual temptation. But he never once gave into it. He is a model of resisting the devil, and the devil will flee. Even when he had all the power to save his life in the Garden of Eden, he chose not to use it. Best form of self-defense sometimes is self-sacrifice. But we are to resist him, not to battle him. The battle is God's. We resist him. And the Bible gives us weapons to do that. They're not physical weapons, spears and swords and habergens that can't harm him. They're spiritual weapons. God gives us truth. We're to gird our loins with truth. The Word of God. Not our feelings, not our emotions, not what society says. Righteousness. A blessed breastplate of righteousness. Our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And that's outworked through the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a weapon against Satan. Doing right by others is a weapon. The gospel message ought to shot our feet. We ought to be ready to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel is to resist him. It's a weapon that he can't fight because he can't change it. The gospel is true. The shield of faith is what quenches the fiery darts of the devil. That's what, that's what Job had laid down. Job laid down the shield of faith. He, did, he, he set aside faith that God would make it right in the end. And those fiery darts attacked him to where he began to despair of life, even though he never cursed God that so many do. A helmet of salvation, knowing what God says about salvation, that what has been given us cannot be taken away, is a weapon against Leviathan. These are all defensive weapons. Defensive spiritual weapons. Armor. And then we're given one offensive weapon. Not something to swing wildly, but to use wisely. And what is that? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. And we even are given an example by the, by the Messiah Himself of how to use the Word of God. Not to try to prove it. Not to try to reconcile it for people that reject it anyway. Jesus wielded the sword of spirit of the Spirit wisely. Three of the most powerful words in the English language with which we can resist the devil. It is written. Doesn't need our commentary, doesn't need our explanation, but it is written. Jesus, if you'll bow down yourself to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Depart from me, Satan. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord God alone, and Him only shalt thou worship. 
It is written, in the beginning God made them male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. I don't care what society says. I don't care what vile, rotting jungle fruit on a Supreme Court says. I don't care what vile, wicked creatures that populate the houses of Congress say. It is written. It is written, thou shalt not kill. Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. I don't care what women's rights groups say. It is written, behold, all nations are but dust, a speck in a bucket. That's the sword of the Spirit. Satan is formidable. A great dragon. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The weapons of man cannot pierce his skin. He breathes fire. His eyes glow. He is king of all the children of pride. Yet, he was made. He was a created being. Not eternal like God the Father. Not eternal like the Logos, the Word, the wisdom that was in the beginning that became flesh. God manifest in the flesh, Jesus the Son. He was created. God says in Job 41.11, Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine, including the dragon. A created being. If none is so fierce... If none is so big and bad as to be able to stir up Leviathan, how much less can a man stand before Leviathan's maker? Turn to Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2. We, we talked about this back when we were discussing the fifth trumpet judgment. That hellish army of demonic locusts that are unleashed from the bottomless pit to torment men for five months. And Joel prophesies this. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy uh, in Joel points to that fifth trumpet judgment. And it was very interesting because behind all that, God says something in chapter 2 verse 11, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. This demonic army is His because He made it. Now that might throw into chaos, your understanding of God and evil and all of that. But God, what is, whatsoever is under the whole heaven is His. And whether we understand it or not, let's not be like Job. Let's by faith understand in the end it's all made right. God controls it all. Satan and his army can only do what God allows. Job 2.11, And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For He is strong that executes His Word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? Man can't abide Leviathan. Without God, how much... I mean, man can't abide Leviathan without God. How much less can he abide God without God? Turn to Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before His indignation? That means God. Who can abide the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by Him. 
to those who cannot abide Leviathan without God. Who can abide God without God? But, verse 7, the Lord, Jehovah, is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. You see, God is the storm, far greater than Leviathan, the piercing serpent. A storm that will even swallow up the piercing serpent. A storm that goes before and wrecks the wicked and all that stand against Him. Yet, He's also the shelter from the storm. God is the storm and the shelter from the storm. He is the judge and uh, He is the one uh, that pays the judgment on our behalf. That's a mighty truth that religion can't understand. That's a God not revealed in the Quran. Not revealed. You see, the Quran talks about Allah all merciful. But it doesn't tell you anything about His mercy. It's just a random, distant, unknowable thing that we can't possibly know. And if you talk to a Muslim, he will never say he knows he's going to be right with God when he dies. He can never know that. He just hopes and prays. And even Muhammad didn't know where he was going. But we have the mercy of God revealed to us. It's not just some distant thing that we can't understand. It's spelled out for us in Jesus Christ and we can lay our hope upon it. The God of the Quran is not the God of the Bible. Even a, a six-year-old that's just learned to read could see that. Alright, I'm going to go for just a few more minutes if you guys don't mind. Go back to Revelation. We're in Revelation. I've been in Job all morning. We're talking about Leviathan, the great red dragon, a formidable enemy. We should have a healthy dose of fear for Him, but never terrified, never frightened. Resist Him as believers and He shall flee from us. He hates Israel. He hates the church. He has no fear, so He actually thinks He's going to be able to overthrow these things. And that lack of fear is His downfall. It's His foolishness. Because God, whatsoever is under the whole heaven, is God's. Revelation 12, verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. He's red. What does that mean? Well, a lot of commentators will look at that and say that talks about he's murderous. He's a murderer. It's, it's symbolizing blood. Well, John, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. John eight forty four. Let's look there a moment. The four main characters of the Bible. God, number one. Jesus, the Christ, number two. Satan, the dragon, number three. Antichrist, number four. God's above it all. It's no dualistic good versus evil. God's above all that. Satan thinks otherwise. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father he, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus spoke this against the Jews who denied that he was who he claimed to be. Your, your, God, your father is not God. I don't care who you talk to or who, what kind of relationship you think you have with God. 
If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. If you disdain the Son, you don't know the Father. Your Father is the devil. Some of these people that claim they have a great relationship with God and things are great, and they've denied Jesus, they've denied the Word of God, and they're living in sin, they do have a good relationship with their God. Their God is Leviathan, the crooked serpent. Not the Creator, but the devil. They're devil worshipers. They may not have a pentagram or do sacrifices, but they're devil worshipers in more danger. Because they can't even see how they've been deceived. But red would be an appropriate color for the dragon. He is a murderer from the beginning. But what is this red telling us? It's not talking about his murderous qualities. It talks about what he's there to do. And we ought to let Scripture interpret Scripture. There was something that was read earlier in the book of Revelation. Does anybody remember what that was? One of the four horses of the apocalypse. Remember, the horses were driven by God. The horsemen were brought into the situation by horses. It's not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's the four horses. And the second one, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 6, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. The lamb opens the seals. And it's the lamb that sends the horse. He was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. The red horse took peace from the earth. The red horse was war. This parenthesis we're in right now is all about war. The war between Satan and the physical seed of Abraham. The war between Satan and Isaac, the son of promise. You see, not all the physical seed of Abraham is Satan after to where he would want to destroy. He's after the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. Not Ishmael, the wild man who was prophesied to cause all sorts of trouble. We see it today with the Muslim world, the Arabic world, the descendants of Ishmael. What about the sons of Ishmael? What about the Muslims who claim descendants from Abraham? Who falsely claim that it was Ishmael Abraham offered up as a sacrifice? What does God say about them in their boastings and religion? Cast out the bondwoman and his son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be made heir with the son of the free woman. That's what God says about Islam. Cast out the bondwoman. He will not be made heir with the son of promise. Isaac is the son of promise. And we are the spiritual seed of Abraham through Isaac and his descendants, the Jews. Not Ishmael and the Arabs. They're the physical sons of Abraham and as in a sense there's certain blessings that go with that. But they are cast out for the son of promise. The red horse came to take peace from the earth. The red dragon comes to take peace from the woman. From national Israel. And the peace in which she thinks she is dwelling. Having made a treaty with Antichrist. Having seen her temple rebuilt. Perhaps fearing God, but still not messianic. They say peace, peace when there is no peace. The dragon comes to take peace from her. Satan 
That word in Hebrew simply means adversary. Satan is the adversary. What does an adversary do? He opposes. He sows discord. And what is the ultimate opposition? What's the ultimate discord in human civilization? War. The Civil War General William Sherman that I quoted this morning had an interesting thing to say about war. I am tired and sick of war. Its glory is all moonshine. It is only those who have neither fired a shot nor heard the cries and groans of the wounded or heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, for vengeance, for desolation. War is hell. And that's what Satan wants to unleash against the church and against Israel. War is hell. People that sit around in Washington that run our, our military branches, some of them have never even fired a, beep, deep, a Daisy BB gun. Clamoring for this and clamoring for that. They don't know what they're talking about. War is hell. We shouldn't want it. We shouldn't desire it. Some have said war is God's judgment on man here on earth. Hell is God's judgment after earth. There's some truth in that too. In human history, even amidst... The hells of war, it's amazing some of the testimonies that have um, um, come out unto the glory of God. I had an interesting encounter last week with uh, an old man that lives up in a little community in the mountains I never knew existed near Back Cave. And he was the first person to ever bring the art of Japanese Aikido to America. Um, any Aikido in America today is because of him. He was a U.S. service officer that lived in Japan after World War II. And it was a time when the U.S. government wanted the Japanese servicemen to interact with the Japanese and learn some stuff about their culture if they were going to live there. And one of the things that the servicemen offered, I mean, the base offered was martial arts training. And somehow the base had convinced the Japanese fathers of Aikido to come teach a class on the service base. These were the guys that were the founders of this very interesting style of martial arts. And so they came and taught. And this man was their, one of their students. And he was the best American student they ever had. And he came back to America afterwards and started a dojo in Charlotte. And that's why we have Aikido in this area. Now he's an elderly man uh, that's living alone in obscurity kind of interesting that happens a lot in uh, different uh, types of hobbies and stuff that involve uh, uh, egos at the end of at the end of time usually people that uh, are big and great just die in obscurity that's what man is not to say this about this particular gentleman but I was encouraged we had never met him I didn't know if he would receive us or not but I walked into his house and he'd been studying his bible had it at his feet. But long story short, he was married to a Japanese woman. She was there and they would speak Japanese to each other. And her family in war, prior to World War II in Japan were Christians, which is extremely rare. There was very few Christians in Japan. So those Christians that were there were genuine. And they had an orphanage for street children. And during World War II, the area where they were was bombed. Terribly bombed by the U.S. And all the buildings were demolished except the Christian orphanage. It stood 
and did not suffer the ravages of war. An amazing testimony of God's grace and protection of His people. So even in war, there's great stories of God's grace and mercy and protection. But war is hell, and that's what the dragon comes to do. And woe unto those who are left here on the earth when he's cast out of heaven. Praise God, that won't be us. Let me just end with this. Turn to 1 Peter 5. Satan comes to bring war against the physical seed of Abraham, against the seed of Isaac, the son of promise, against the spiritual seed of Abraham, the church. That's why it's important for us as we await the coming of our Lord for the church in the air. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, to be those who are as the Apostle says, be sober. That means clear-minded. Be vigilant, watching, because your adversary, that word adversary is what the word Satan means in Hebrew. The devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist. Remember, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible's message is consistent. Resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The afflictions and temptations brought to you by Satan are no different than what other believers around the world are forced to endure. We're part of the same afflictions, so resist him in faith. No poor me, no groaning, no whimpering, no despair like Job. Resist him in the faith because God's accomplishing the same things in you through this that He's accomplishing in the brethren around the world. Even some of those that suffer much greater than what we do. And then Ephesians 5 says that we should, in these dark days, walk circumspectly. Be wise, not fools. Circumspection is awareness. We need to be aware of these spiritual battles. We need to be aware of what's coming. We need to be aware of the spiritual hatred... Satan has for Israel, the spiritual hatred he has for the church. And when we act, not act foolishly, but act in a way that's circumspect and aware of these things. May everything we do be circumspect and aware. Aware of our enemy. And knowledge of our enemy is what gives us the advantage. Sometimes it's better to know more about your enemy than what you know about your friends. 